a BS meter for AI, retrieval-based models for chatbots, and a special offer for Twimmel listeners. All this plus tons more on This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hello and welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI, the podcast where I bring you the week's most interesting and important stories from the worlds of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm Sam Charrington, and today is Friday, July 8th, 2016. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. A couple of announcements before we jump in. Uh, We've got another packed week of stories this week. In fact, when I started pulling together the research for this week's show, I actually thought it might be a light news week, but by the time I was done, I had about 75 tabs open in my browser. Now, I've since whittled that down to 40 or so links and about 30 or so really interesting stories, but that's still a lot to cover. If you're a regular listener, you probably noticed that last week's show was about 10 minutes longer than the 25 minutes I try to shoot for, and that's not a trend that I want to see continue. So what I'm thinking of doing is launching an email newsletter that can be kind of like an extended edition of the show notes. Uh, I'll summarize not just the stories that I talk about in the show, but all of the other interesting stories that don't make it into the show. If this is something you'd be interested in receiving, let me know by signing up at twimlai.com slash newsletter. If enough people sign up, I'll know there's interest and I'll give it a go. Next, a quick teaser before we jump into today's stories. At the end of the show, I'll be telling you how to get a free copy of a book I previously mentioned here on the show, Compliments of O'Reilly Media. All right, let's get to it. This week, we're going to lead off with a couple of big picture stories. You recall back in May, I talked about the AI workshop series launched by the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. In that same show, I discussed a pretty pessimistic talk on the societal implications of AI that I'd heard at an unrelated conference delivered by futurist Martin Ford. Well, this week, the last of the White House AI workshops was held on Thursday in New York City. That workshop called AI Now, focused on the social and economic implications of AI technologies in the near term. I didn't catch much of the workshop, but I did read through the keynote delivered by Jason Furman, who's the chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and I thought it was a pretty good talk. Uh, He provided a much more balanced view of the future than Ford did. Furman frames the debate about the economic impact of AI in terms of whether this time will be different. He says that some optimists argue that AI is no different than past technological revolutions and that for centuries our fears that machines will ultimately replace human labor have turned out to be unjustified. While the pessimists among us argue that AI is different because for the first time it's replacing cognitive tasks. Furman's belief is that AI won't be different, but that that shouldn't necessarily be a cause for optimism. Quoting Furman here, My worry is not that this time could be different when it comes to AI, 
but that this time could be the same as we've experienced over the past several decades. The traditional argument that we do not need to worry about the robots taking our jobs still leaves us with the worry that the only reason we still have our jobs is because we're willing to do them for lower wages. He continues discussing the huge shifts he expects to see in job markets by saying, The concern is not that robots will take human jobs and render humans unemployable. The traditional economic arguments against that are borne out by centuries of experience. Instead, he says, the concern is that the process of turnover, in which workers displaced by technology find new jobs as technology gives rise to new consumer demands and thus new jobs, could lead to sustained periods of time with a large fraction of people not working. End quote. Furman goes on to list a handful of things that government can do to advance AI and ensure that all citizens share its benefits. Those are promoting basic research, investing in STEM education, facilitating competitive markets, advocating for consumer privacy, and investing in cybersecurity. All in all, I'm pretty torn about covering these kinds of topics on the podcast. Furman's talk really resonated with me because I personally tend to believe that growing economic inequality is one of the greatest threats that we face as a society, and that was one of the major themes of his talk. Consequently, understanding how AI plays into this is important for those of us who care both about AI and the functioning of our societies. At the same time, I'm not sure I really see a lot of new ideas coming out of these discussions, but that just might be my bias as a technologist. Or maybe I'm not looking in the right places. What do you think? Let me know via Twitter at, at Sam Charrington. Also, I'll be sharing a PDF of Furman's talk with some of my highlights included. I'll be linking to that in the show notes at twimlai.com. Next up, let's talk about tuning our AI BS meters. Now, the title of this story is inspired by a blog post over on the Lab 41 blog. I think I've mentioned that blog before. Uh, over there, Bob Gleishelf asks how analysts and data scientists can come to trust the results that they receive from their algorithms. But Bob doesn't really attempt to answer that question, so there's not much there. Uh, rather, the notion of a BS meter seemed to apply perfectly to a blog post posted this week by Stephen Merity whose work we've discussed on the podcast before. His post, which is called It's ML, Not Magic, Simple Questions You Should Ask to Reduce AI Hype, takes on the issue of what we could call AI washing. This is a phenomenon that we're starting to see a lot in which every technology company and every product is suddenly an AI company or AI product. Unfortunately, I think we're just at the beginning of this cycle, and it might be the year 2020 before we experience peak AI washing. A personal point of reference for me comes from cloud computing, where we first started talking about companies cloud washing in like 2008 or so, and peak cloud washing didn't occur until five years later in around 2013. And now fast forward to 2016, and we're experiencing an aftershock of sorts and hybrid washing in which every enterprise offering is being rebranded as a hybrid cloud. The reality is that this is just part of the process. Analyst firm Gartner captured an element of this in their technology adoption model, which they call the hype cycle. 
And AI is certainly well on the way towards what they call the peak of inflated expectations. In any case, let me try to rein this in before I go into full rant mode here. Stephen, in his article, implores us to fight the hype by training ourselves to ask a few basic questions when we're presented with potentially hyped innovations, which I've recast a bit as the following. First, what cases does the system fail on? This question helps us identify the upper bound on what's possible, or in other words, how generalizable is this so-called intelligence? Next, what data was the system trained on? From this question, we can start to judge whether the system requires expensive labels and where they may come from, and we can get a sense for the fidelity of the training data relative to the real world. The next question is, what's the right measure of performance for this system? And related, what is the system's performance? What's needed in the real world? And what's the performance of the best baseline? Self-driving cars provide a great example here where Steven suggests that even trivial models given reasonable data could probably score in the high 90% against some notion of accuracy. But the stakes are so high in this case that measuring accuracy doesn't even matter. Rather, a metric like failure cases per a million miles is more relevant and can be compared to actual human performance. Next is, have the results been published? We talked a bit about the role of research and AI innovation a bit over the past few episodes in the context of the quote-unquote AI culture wars in Silicon Valley. Uh, Jack Clark's tweet, which Stephen references in his post, seems to suggest that published research is a prerequisite for all innovation, which I don't quite buy into. Apple is a good counterpoint here, but more broadly, I feel... Our success as an industry is largely dependent on our ability to make machine learning and AI technologies more accessible to a broad range of users. This is why I'm excited about pre-trained cloud services for machine learning, like the ones offered by Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and others. These services are far from perfect, but they are highly accessible to non-PhD developers. That said... Certainly, if you say your work is based on advanced research, you should be willing to cite it, whether it's your research or someone else's. Incidentally, the topic of democratizing artificial intelligence was the subject of a blog post by Francois Cholet, the author of the popular Keras deep learning library for Python. And that post actually kicked up a little bit of a stir over in the machine learning Reddit. The next and last question from Stephen's list is, does AI here change the business fundamentals? In other words, is AI just adding a little bit more value or is it truly transformative for this business? To put Stephen's rubric to the test, we might choose to apply it to one of this week's headlines that really sent my bullshit meter through the roof. This week, London-based Intelligent X launched what they call the world's first beer that's been brewed by artificial intelligence, a story that was picked up by Wired, Forbes, and a bunch of other media outlets. Basically, when you buy one of their four beers, AI Golden, AI Pale, AI Black, or AI Amber, your bottle has a code on it that you can follow to pull up a Facebook Messenger bot that asks you a feedback questionnaire. This data is then fed to an AI that uses reinforcement learning to improve the brew, 
Essentially, what it's doing is summarizing the feedback that they receive in a way that optimizes for pleasing customers and sends the final results over to the human brewers to implement. In reality, I don't really have enough data to answer all of Steven's questions in this case, but I'll go out on a limb here and say that the company's marketing reeks of BS. That said, I think there are a couple of interesting things buried under this pile here somewhere. First off, what the company's done is automated an aspect of product management with machine learning. And product management, particularly feature prioritization, not features in the machine learning sense, but features in a product sense, can be a pretty tedious and challenging problem. And applying machine learning to this kind of makes some sense. Second, if you think that beer tastes are localized or locally influenced, and I don't know that they are, but if you think they are, then maybe building out a business to produce a family of beers that's hyper-locally optimized for local tastes uh, could be kind of interesting. Think of a beer that's not named but rather numbered, like with an area code. Think Local Hops Pale 415, which is tuned to San Francisco taste, or Local Hops Pale 212, which is more of a New York City brew. This is not what Intelligent X is claiming to do, but it could be interesting, I guess. What do you think? Are you buying what Intelligent X is selling? Hit me up on Twitter and let me know. Next up, let's jump over to business news. Another week, another aqua hire in the machine learning and AI space, as Google announced that they've picked up French image recognition startup Moodstocks for an undisclosed sum. The company, which was founded back in 2008, will join Google's Paris R&D team and continue to work on machine vision tools. As I said, terms of the deal haven't been announced, but if we're to use Twitter's Magic Pony acquisition as a baseline, where it's been reported that the company paid a cool $13 million per PhD, a little LinkedIn research suggests that Google may have paid around $50 million for mood stocks, assuming they give half credit for a master's. Smart News, a Tokyo-based company whose news aggregation app is powered by custom-built machine learning algorithms, announced this week that they've raised $38 million in Series D financing, reportedly at a valuation between five and $600 million. Also on the funding front, VC Phil Libin of General Catalyst Partners announced that the firm has made a couple of new bot-related investments. The firm participated in a $1.7 million seed round for a company called Growbot, whose product integrates with Slack to allow employees to collect and provide real-time feedback at work. The firm has also invested $3 million in Butter.ai, which seeks to help employees answer questions and find documents within a work environment, thus improving office productivity. Hey, if any of my fellow Plumtree software alumni are listening to this, you probably got a kick out of this as well. The bot is the new corporate portal. Phil's LinkedIn post elaborates a bit on the firm's investment theses. According to Phil, GC believes that 2016 is for bots what 2008 was for apps. The bots are all shitty now, but they will get better and first movers will have an advantage. Furthermore, the firm believes that both Growbot and Butter provide simple solutions to real problems that customers are facing. That neither are app replacements, but rather 
tackle these problems in ways that are uniquely suited to the medium. And finally, they're excited about the fact that both work within existing communication channels, augmenting normal human-to-human conversations. One more business story I want to mention. In recent weeks, we've talked about what I've called the AI culture wars of Silicon Valley, which is really just shorthand for the transformation that large tech companies are making to reorient themselves around machine learning and AI. If you've listened to the last few shows, you know that we've talked about the struggles that Apple and Google are facing to make this shift and that both companies have been covered by stories, feature stories to that effect. Well, not wanting to be left out, Microsoft handed The Verge Silicon Valley editor Casey Newton an exclusive in order to help get their story out. For the most part, it kind of reads to me like an advertising supplement. I mean, how can you write about Microsoft and AI and make only passing mention to the Tay disaster? But if you're interested in Microsoft and what they're up to, you might find it interesting. What I found most useful was the company's articulation of their five-part AI strategy, conversation, referring to their conversation as a service, the brain, which is their core AI technologies, social graph, which refers to the recent LinkedIn acquisition, uh, the platform, which is Windows uh, and Azure, and of course, developers, developers, developers. All right. Next up, on to research. For this show, I'm going to briefly cover a couple of top machine learning and AI headlines that came from applied research projects. First off, this week, Google DeepMind announced a partnership with the British National Health Service to apply machine learning to the early detection of eye disease. The five-year study is going to take advantage of about a million digital eye scans collected by NHS at their Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. Two of the primary disease targets for this research are diabetic retinopathy and age-related macular degeneration, both of which are more successfully treated with early diagnosis. A big part of what was announced this week was the agreement between DeepMind and Moorfields, and it's being emphasized that the data has been anonymized. If this is the case, though, the question I've got is, why isn't this data, which was collected by a public health organization, being released publicly. Perhaps I'm being a bit naive here to the costs of making this data set available, but if we think about the impact a public research data set like ImageNet has had over the years, it strikes me that a data set like this could have significant public benefit if made available to multiple research teams. In any case, we should expect to see more and more applications of deep learning and other machine learning techniques across image-based diagnostic tools in the years to come. Back on June 24th, for example, we spoke a bit about some research results published on applying deep learning to breast cancer diagnosis. Well, just this week, a paper published in the journal Radiology describes research that uses a different approach, support vector machine classification, to identify Alzheimer's disease in MRI images. If you're interested in reading more about this research, the paper is freely available on the Radiology Society's website, which I'll link to in the show notes. Okay, I'm going to sneak in a quick reference to another interesting paper here. This one is called Steering a Predator Robot 
using a mixed-frame, event-driven, convolutional neural network. And it's by researchers from the Institute of Neuroinformatics at the University of Zurich and the Intelligent Systems Research Center at the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland. This paper got a lot of news coverage this week, and as you might imagine, the media really ran off with the title. The Daily Mail, as is their specialty, I know, was the worst with their article, Rise of the Terminators. Super intelligent predator robot is taught to hunt down prey in chilling experiment. I mean, really, that's too much even for me. Beyond the clickbait, though, this is an interesting paper. Basically, in some other research that these guys have done, they've created a new kind of sensor called a Dynamic Active Pixel Sensor, or DAVIS, that's modeled after the human retina. The Davis sensor outputs static image frames as well as a set of event-driven frames corresponding to changes in contrast that are picked up by the sensor. The latter dynamic frames are able to be generated and processed at a much higher rate than the former static frames. So given that deep neural nets are the new hotness, this team wanted to see if they could wire their sensor up to a deep neural net and use it for real-time predator-prey or following applications. This would be useful because, according to the paper, a deep learning implementation based on static images alone isn't really fast enough today for real-time predation. This is a nice paper to check out, especially if you're interested in robotics and sensors and things like that. And bonus, there's no math. They just take the conventional deep neural networks technique, apply it in their application, and report on the results. They also walk through all of the implementation decisions they make and little tricks that they have to perform along the way. Pretty interesting, and yes, I know, just another brick in the Skynet wall. A few quick notes in technology news before we dive into projects. Python users might be interested to note that IPython 5.0 was released to the public today. The new version features a new terminal interface with some pretty cool features, on-the-fly syntax highlighting, multi-line editing, and better code completion. Microsoft announced an update to the Skype bot platform. This update features new support for Skype groups, as well as a new visual cards interface. The cards interface is pretty similar to what Facebook announced last week, which we discussed here on the show. Microsoft also announced that it's open source its Project Malmo, which was formerly known as Project AIX. This project lets developers use Minecraft as a testing ground for AI research. It's aimed at advanced research, but they claim that it's pretty accessible and uh, is usable by novices as well. The project is up on GitHub waiting for you to check it out. And of course, I'll drop a link to the project in the show notes. On the projects front, there were some really cool blog posts published this week. Here on the podcast, we've talked about a bunch of projects over the past few weeks that build generative systems using long short-term memory, or LSTM, residual neural nets, or RNNs. 
We saw a film written by an AI, a text editor that writes sci-fi, uh, and a system for predicting the sounds that objects make when they interact with one another. Well, I've got another cool one for you, uh, and this one comes from uh, developer Benjamin Trandin, who recently blogged about his experiment in teaching an AI to write Python code. Benjamin created his LSTM network using the Theano deep learning framework and trained it with about 27 megs of Python code from GitHub. He shows some of the code that his system produces, and it's about what you'd expect if you watch Sunspring. That was that AI-written screenplay. It certainly looks like Python, but according to Benjamin, none of the output functions generated by the AI would compile. Perhaps the next step might be to train an adversarial network to evaluate the code generated by the initial network and use that to provide feedback to it. We talked about adversarial networks back on June 17th. The next project I wanted to mention is called Deep Learning for Chatbots, Implementing a Retrieval-Based Model in TensorFlow. This post is by Denny Britz on his Wild ML blog, and starts out asking why you might want to use a retrieval-based model for your bot, one that uses a repository of predefined responses, versus uh, one based on a generative model. Well, you know the answer to that question already. It's because, as we just saw, generative bots are prone to generating gibberish. I guess what I like most about Denny's post was that it's very systematic. It's also less about chatbots than the title implies, and can be applied to any situation where you might want to use a retrieval-based model. Then he starts by explaining his training data set, which is the Ubuntu Dialog Corpus, a 1 million example data set which was created from chat logs from Ubuntu IRC channels. He then explains the Recall at K evaluation metric, which measures the model's ability to choose the best K responses out of 10 possibilities and codes up a quick evaluation function. The model he chooses for prediction is a dual encoder LSTM network, which IBM Watson researchers have shown to work pretty well on this corpus. Then he walks through the creation, training, and evaluation of the model in Python using TensorFlow. And he compares the performance of the LSTM against both a random model and TFIDF for context. Then he acknowledges that the dual encoder LSTM is only one approach to try here. And actually, his code is pretty nicely abstracted to allow us to swap in alternative models. Of course, both the code and the data are up on GitHub for you to play with. All right, we're coming to the end of the show. A quick couple of announcements before we finish up. I wanted to remind you again about the fifth annual Data Science Summit, which will be held next week in San Francisco. I'll be including a link to the summit's website in the show notes, and I encourage you to take a look at the lineup. The folks over at Turi, this is the company previously known as Datto. They had to change their name this week due to legal reasons. Well, they were kind enough to offer discounted registration to Twimmel listeners, and the code for that is Twimmel20. Next, I mentioned in the intro that I had a freebie for you. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a really interesting looking book called Mastering Feature Engineering. The book is being written by Alice Zhang and will be published by O'Reilly Media. And it's currently available through O'Reilly's early release program. 
I mentioned it on the show in the context of the importance of feature engineering to the overall machine learning process. Well, the kind folks at O'Reilly heard about that, and they're offering This Week in Machine Learning and AI listeners free access to the ebook. That's right, totally free, and I'm pretty pumped about that. All you have to do is go to twimlai.com slash MFE, twimlai.com slash MFE, and you'll be redirected to a special landing page on the O'Reilly site. Once you get there, just log in with your O'Reilly account or create one if you don't have one and enter your name and the book will be added to your account. Thanks so much to the folks at O'Reilly for making this available to Twimmel listeners. Finally, as I mentioned in the intro, I want to remind you that I'm considering starting an email newsletter where I'll post an expanded version of the show notes that covers all the great things I found each week that I didn't have a chance to talk about on the show. If you'd be interested in something like this, go to twimmelai.com slash newsletter and sign up. All right, folks, that's it for our show today. As always, I appreciate all the shout outs I've been getting via email and Twitter and iTunes reviews and definitely keep them coming. The notes for this show will be up on twimmelai.com slash eight and you'll find all the relevant links there. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next week.